Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's edition of the Contours podcast series. My name is Nick Harris, and I am the Senior Analyst and Program Head for State Resilience and Fragility here at the New Lines Institute. Today, I'm joined by Anthony Elgosen. Anthony is a lawyer, writer, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon. He's also a contributing editor to our own New Lines magazine. Today, Anthony and I will be discussing security dynamics in Lebanon in the aftermath of the October 14 clashes in Beirut that led to several people being killed and widespread fears that Lebanon was going to descend back into civil conflict. Anthony, thank you for joining us today. Wanted to talk to you about the events that occurred recently in Beirut, the clashes between the Lebanese forces and Hezbollah and Amal. These clashes, as you know, had a significant international attention. And there were some people that were worried that they could metastasize into a broader conflict within Lebanon. Can you walk us through the reason for those clashes and what they mean for Lebanon's internal security, generally speaking? Sure. So these clashes, like other ones that have happened in the last couple of years, have uh, specific triggers, but also uh, longer running tensions. These clashes in particular, I'd say, involved a protest against an investigation to the Beirut blast and the judge in particular organized by Hezbollah, the Emma movement, and initially the Christian majority Marada movement. Now, heading towards the so-called Palace of Justice, the factions, partisans, and supporters ended up going into or nearing Christian majority neighborhoods where folks are partisans, supporters, and sympathizers of different parties, such as the Lebanese forces, to a lesser extent, the Falange and FPM problem with knowing what happened specifically is the sequencing. So it's clear that young men from the Shia community were near the Christian neighborhood, potentially in alleys, chanting slogans that Christians might have found provocative, but also in their presence in numbers, making people skittish. It's also clear that at some point, someone from Ayn al-Rumani, meaning geographically in that neighborhood, shot at the Shia protesters. From there, you had clashes spiral. You had the Lebanese army intervening and the army shooting at folks. You had potentially, the videos don't show this, but sources indicate this did happen, Christian gunmen firing at Shia protesters, rioters, and gunmen. And then you had Shia gunmen firing at Christian. So obviously that's a tense situation. Now, what's interesting is the attribution of responsibility is unclear for all the different parties. So it's clear that Hezbollah and Amal, or at least some of their partisans, wanted to provoke others and wanted to discredit the investigation. It's also clear, and sources close to the LF have admitted, that the LF, to an extent, had prepared for some sort of tension or clashes. What's not clear is whether there was a standing order, let's say, whether there was a loose policy in place, a green light, so to speak, allowing uh, X person to do Y if Z happens. Sources differ on that. What's also not clear is to what extent people intended to have armed violent clashes from the get-go. 
because some eyewitnesses say it was a man who took a pistol up and shot first. Others indicated it was actually the army. Maybe a soldier got nervous or maybe there was some struggles that were happening. And then, of course, others say it was snipers pre-positioned on rooftops, likely organized by the Lebanese forces. So those are the options. Since the clashes have happened, the Lebanese military has interrogated at least 20, maybe two dozen Christian Lebanese. There's some debate about which units are doing that and why and maybe where they're getting their information. That's likely happened. And there's been a back and forth politically regarding responsibility and also spin of the clashes. So Lebanese forces leaders, advisors, and say partisans connected to the party have both tried to own and distance themselves from the conflict. Like at times they've said, for instance, that this is an example of Christians taking a stand. Like again, now they're being careful regarding responsibility. It's, it's young men in the neighborhood, not necessarily party members, not necessarily people acting under standing orders. In this narrative, it's Christian folks that are tired of, let's say, Hezbollah's aggression or posturing. And they're tired of what they would describe as repeated incursions into their neighborhoods by people on motorcycles, by people protests, by uh, armed uh, gunmen in the past. On the other side, Hezbollah and Amal have basically blamed the Lebanese forces for pre-planning uh, armed violence and for attacking what they would describe as generally peaceful protesters. It's tough to do, parse what actually happened because the parties themselves are being muddled like when you speak to them privately about responsibility. And one example is that each have publicly and privately claimed that the Lebanese armed forces and the police, the ISF, had assured them the day before that there would be no violence and that they could manage the situation. So the Lebanese forces are saying, well, we were worried there would be some sort of confrontation. So we went to the army saying, we would need you to secure our areas. We went to the ISF saying, we need you to secure our neighborhoods. And at the same time, you've seen Hassan al in, in a speech he gave talk about reassurances he also received or that the party received from these self-same state security forces. So what's interesting about that is both sides were clearly prepared for conflict to a point. Both sides were clearly aware that something could happen. The military stated it was on top of it, maybe didn't deploy enough people initially to prevent that sort of conflict, though I don't know how many people would have been needed given the numbers we saw. And so if they're all acknowledging a sense that, that there was awareness beforehand, yet denying pre-planning it, and we see that a lot of the folks had significant arms on them, like assault rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, possibly sniper rifles, machine guns. It tells you a lot, but it's, it's all muddled at the same time. Tony, I just want to ask you, you've done an excellent job laying out for us the events as they occurred, and you've begun to hint to us at a potential broader political purpose for these clashes. But I want to state it clearly. Your analysis, what was the political objective of these actors? And related to that, should we be concerned that the Lebanese armed forces and the Lebanese security forces are not up to the task to keep the country from descending into further conflict? 
this is where we'll have to be a bit precise regarding what the action or actions were in art. If we're focusing on the protests, let's say Hezbollah and Amal and their supporters were clearly trying to obstruct or derail the investigation as currently being conducted in part by Judge Bitar into the Beirut blast. They were trying to do so through these protests, which involved demonstrations in front of the Palace of Justice, but also to a point involved these folks heading towards and into Christian neighborhoods. What's unclear is how much of this was initially planned or spontaneous. What's unclear from looking at the publicly available information. Similarly, it's clear that the Lebanese forces and or Christians in Nainudamini, an area that has long had tensions with neighbors in Shia, what's clear is they had prepared themselves for some kind of confrontation, perhaps just trying to repel men they thought might have come into the neighborhood to smash a couple of cars or just to chant provocative slogans. Where it gets murky is, okay, we know now that there were sustained armed conflict. Seven people died, 30 people were wounded. Those are the numbers that I know right now. What was that conflict about is harder to determine because we don't know how much of it was actually directed. It's clear parties, once the conflict began, were willing and able and prepared to escalate that conflict while they contain and prevent it elsewhere. And it's been clear that they've tried to own it in different ways since. And so I'd like to focus on that part in talking about the politics you mentioned. The Lebanese forces have owned it to a point by saying Lebanese and Christians in particular have had enough of Hezbollah's antics, let's say. When you say own it, do you mean have taken it and branded it as part of a broader purpose or they've owned their responsibility for social disorder? What I'm talking about is the party leaders and other figures desire to own the, what they might paint as a resistance to Hezbollah generally, and specifically in the Christian community, while also denying and distancing themselves from orchestration, preparation, and directive. And that's what's making it complex, because when you talk to people privately even, there's been some ambiguity regarding what happened. Meanwhile, on the Hezbollah side, in particular, though they weren't the only ones involved. And in fact, they probably weren't the primary participants. I think the Amal movement was more involved in, in the skirmishes. On the Hezbollah side, you've seen from Hassan Assad's speech that he's addressing different audiences at once. He's addressing his constituency. He's addressing other Lebanese. And he's, of course, addressing Christians in particular this time around, because this is where the fault line was. When he's talking to his constituents, he's essentially trying to rein them in for now trying to explain why what they might have seen as an overly restrained reaction to provocation from the Lebanese forces makes sense from the party's perspective, Hezbollah's perspective. He's also reassuring them of the party's top dog status, mentioning, for instance, the blustering number of 100,000 fighters, talking about their record in different conflicts, talking about what they could do but don't want to do, but what he doesn't want to speak of, even though he was incessantly speaking about it which is wage a war and win it. At the same time, he was talking to Christians and at different points was addressing the Lebanese forces leader and party specifically, telling them essentially to sit down, shut up and be polite, telling them not to push it, reminding them of what he called the different track records of conflict, 
painting Sami Jaja, the Lebanese forces leader, as a serial loser of clashes and, and Hezbollah as a serial winner. He also addressed Christians generally, saying to them, first of all, you have nothing to fear from the self-styled party of God, right? Going over its track record and dealing with Christians since moving into previously occupied areas in the year 2000, where, to his point, Hezbollah didn't accost or molest Christian villagers, talking about what he would call its track record in Syria, where he's trying to paint the party as a protector of minorities, including Christians. Also telling Christians in Lebanon to be careful and to resist what he might paint as radicalization or militancy within their own community, and to not be dragged down back to Cantonism, separatism, partitionism, and militancy that he believes the Lebanese forces are architects of. That was an interesting, though sometimes just incorrect, presentation by Nasrallah. Those are examples of the way parties are already trying to spin the conflict, even though for the most part they've contained it. Now, since the conflict, regardless of who started it and how, and I'm not saying that's irrelevant, I think it is important, and then people who commit crimes need to be punished, but regardless of who started that conflict, if and to the extent Hezbollah and Ahmad wanted to use the day of protest to derail the investigation, to obstruct it, to delay it, to cast doubt upon it, and to paint it as being politicized and polarized, they've succeeded. Because what's happened is it's become very difficult now to dissociate the Beirut blast investigation from the conflict that happened that day and the blood that was spilled, Shia blood in their eyes. And what's happened is Hezbollah has used the pretext of this politicization, polarization and conflict to suspend the participation of its ministers in cabinet sessions, which in turn has led Najib Mi'ati, the new prime minister, to say he won't call for cabinet sessions until the parties can resolve their disagreements on the tribunal. Meanwhile, the Lebanese forces is trying to, I think, capitalize on political gains within the Christian community while minimizing costs outside of the community that come from this. What's interesting about all of this, too, is the Lebanese armed forces position. As you saw, they, in this instance, like in other instances, they contain instead of preventing conflict. And parties and factions on both sides have had issues with this approach. The Lebanese forces, partisans and advisors might say, the, the army didn't do enough to prevent people from protesting in their neighborhoods, chanting provocations, smashing cars, smashing windows, and so on, threatening folks. Hezbollah and Ahmed will say the army didn't do enough to prevent people from shooting at them. And in fact, they've alleged that the army, as at least one video shows, was also actively shooting at Hezbollah Amal protesters. And so... Here we have a Lebanese armed forces that is tasked with maintaining, along with the police, order in Lebanon, having to deal with the reality that the most powerful parties and factions in Lebanon itself are selectively upholding and undermining order and calling upon it to protect them even as they provoke and attack each other. This is an interesting question because fundamentally a lot of your work in Lebanon has revolved around this question of how the Lebanese security forces, but in particular the Lebanese army, has really been called upon by society to take on more and more and more functions, the securitization of the state and the society in particular. I want to ask you, 
how do you think the events that have occurred recently in Beirut will impact some of these other areas in the country where there's already significant tension between communities, as well as between the local population and the Lebanese armed forces? As the state decays and society frees, you've had a warping effect where people trying to cope with these compounding crises are also contributing to them. And I use the term people here generally to include leaders, officials, officers, soldiers, police, bureaucrats, and citizens. In trying to cope with these crises, people are sometimes contributing to tensions and conflicts that are increasingly difficult to manage. What you're seeing in Lebanon now is this political violence, factional feuding that's been happening intermittently for decades, layered over a rise in crime, both organized and just basic petty crimes, crimes of desperation, of necessity, as well as somewhat unusually sustained social unrest, where before 2019 in Lebanon, you, you didn't really have large scale social unrest the way we're, we've been having now. And it's, it's happened intermittently in different parts of the country, sometimes alongside violent protests and the actions of saboteurs, whether directed by political parties or, or even terrorists. And it's very difficult then for security forces, setting aside their own flaws, shortcomings, abuses, and crimes. It's difficult for the most well-intentioned, best equipped and prepared security forces to manage this kind of complex challenge in Lebanon. This clash fits in with that. You had what was a purportedly peaceful protest. You had at least some within this protest show up with weapons, serious weapons. You had people in neighborhoods who were also armed, ready for a showdown. And this is just one incident that's happened in the last few months. In, in August 2021, just to take an example, in August alone, the security forces had to respond to at least four significant incidents. So at one point, if you remember, Hezbollah operative fired off rockets from South Lebanon and Druze villagers seized him and his truck. So the army had to respond to that, while police had to manage tit-for-tat escalations across the country that had to do with Druze and Shia citizens acting against each other because of this incident. At the same time, you had a peaceful protest to commemorate the Beirut blast on August 4th, where thousands and thousands of people turn out to protest peacefully. Meanwhile, the Lebanese forces, the Syrian Social Nationalist Party, the Amman movement, and the Lebanese Communist Party brawl and skirmish in the district of Jemezi, where some are even using Molotov cocktails. And allegedly, some Christians in the area also intimidated protesters or attacked them because of their, let's say, Muslim background. Even one day I was walking personally and I saw a family criticizing young men who they said were harassing them. It wasn't clear who those young men were, but the family was alleging that they were Christian, say, sympathizers of the Lebanese forces. What you also had that month was a clash in Khaldi, an area south of Beirut, straddling the highway that links Beirut to South Lebanon and the only international civilian airport in the country. You had gunmen perpetrating a vendetta related to a clash that happened the year before, ambush a funeral procession. And then you have Shia Sunni gunmen fighting in the streets again. And the army has to respond to that. The army has to contain that conflict, even as the country's political, purportedly civilian leadership selectively escalates, manages, and prevents it. And the reason it's so complex is the same leaders that, that escalate in one place might diffuse somewhere else. Like in Khaldi, for instance, there are interlinkages between Arab tribesmen, Druze political factions, and Shia. 
And so while they're fighting in that area, Lebanese military intelligence, police intelligence, and the political leadership that's engaging in these conflicts are working in the Bekaa Valley and in the mountains to prevent reprisals and vendettas there because they know that the gunmen have kinfolk there and have ideological counterparts there. The longer and longer socioeconomic crises go on, the longer and longer resources dwindle, the more and more the army and police are expected to do, at times filling in for civilian officials and bureaucrats, the worse and worse the situation will look. It doesn't mean there's going to be a large-scale war or an all-out conflict. But what it means is that, again, state institutions, especially security forces, will be strained in coping with these complex localized conflicts, which will, through their proliferation and aggregation, tax you. That's to say nothing of the way army and the police have increasingly had to ration security the way you might ration bread, fuel, and water. As others have reported, the Lebanese military has managed to limit desertions during this crisis when the, the value of their salaries has eroded by 90% or more at times. It's managed to do that in part by maintaining a flexible and permissive approach informally, whereas it might formally object to people moonlighting, to staying at home, to working side jobs, and rotating in and out. So you essentially have, at least one analyst believes, half the force working. That's going to make it very difficult for you to manage all of this. And that's to say nothing of your challenges with logistics, your challenges with fuel, the fact that you are the face of the state, which itself is now hated because of its failures, so while leaders backslap in glad hand in private and then provoke each other in public, it's the soldiers and police, like again, for all their faults, their shortcomings, and indeed their crimes and abuses at times, they're the faces of the state. They're going to be at times associated with failure, even when they succeed at doing their jobs in that limited sense. Because to maintain order, they have to protect public property. And to maintain safety, they sometimes have to protect the homes of leaders who have pushed their people down the abyss in the first place. And these are soldiers and police whose families are in the same situations as citizens. And that's what makes it ultimately difficult to grapple because, because you're damned if you do certain things and you're damned if you don't do them. If you confront parties, you escalate conflict. If you allow them to fight it out, you're letting them through slow attrition and small-scale conflicts kill and wound people and damage properties anyway. Thank you very much, Tony for your excellent analysis on the ongoing security dynamics in Lebanon and what we need to look for moving forward. We'll continue to keep a close watch on dynamics in Lebanon and to try to understand the future of state resilience and fragility in Lebanon. Thank you everyone and all the best.